There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've turned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Burke Bryant is our guest this week. Burke is an esteemed author, public speaker, and humanitarian whose life-saving contributions have garnered widespread recognition, including the prestigious Presidential Lifetime Achievement Award. He's a veteran of the United States Navy, where he served as an operations specialist and possesses a diverse skill set that includes combat search and rescue, tactical combat casualty care, and diving instruction. In 2016, Bryant founded the Humanitarian Aid and Rescue Project, where he currently serves as head of mission and CEO. Under his leadership, HARP has executed operational missions across North America and around the world, including the front lines of the ongoing Ukraine war. Burke Bryant, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks for having me, Chris. No, it's a pleasure and honor. I, I know how busy you are, and I'm going to say, unfortunately, how busy you are. So I just rattled off an impressive list of your accomplishments, which, but it's good to start at the start. Sure. Where'd you grow up and what were your aspirations back then? Sure. Yeah, I was, um, I was actually born in Washington state and I was there till I was three. And then I was kind of pulled away from there by my mother and father had split up. And, uh, from that point I went into California. My father was a police officer and I spent, I guess you'd say the remainder of my time growing up if I ever did so <laughs> in California. So I understand that you became a fashion photographer and that's not something that very many people have on their resume. Where'd you learn photography and how'd you land your first assignments? Sure. You know, I started, uh, I, I, I got into photography because I wasn't quite sure what I really wanted to do after I had finished, you know, school and military in life. So I was trying to figure out what it was that I wanted. So that was like my transitional period. And, um, I took, a I took a photojournalist course out of a place called Pierce College in Los Angeles. I had some pretty amazing instructors there. I went through that. Then I did the journalism course and I decided uh, I was going to work with the camera a little bit more in the fashion industry, see if I could break. The, the goal was to break into the commercial industry. I ended up breaking into the fashion industry. I met some really great people there. And I started shooting fashion. And again, like the whole time I'm shooting fashion, I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I've never been one for, for the monotony of life. So going into a studio every day, getting down on my knees and taking photos from weird angles, um, at some point was wearing on me. So I decided I would try war photography and I, I jumped into that. And I guess that was the beginning of what got me exactly where I am today. So how do you make that transition from models on the runway to <laughs> being thrown into a war torn area? Yeah, it was tough. <laughs> Who doesn't want to watch models <laughs> on a runway, right? But you know, I I did uh, I did my first job. We'll call it in a place called South Sudan, and I was there for probably under seventy two hours, and I was hooked. Um, it, it was it was interesting being able to capture the moments of you know, and South Sudan is still extremely hostile at this point. You've got a lot of the local tribe wars and things going on there. Um, among other things, they have one bridge left crossing the Nile. So every time you cross that, 
they they think you're going to blow the bridge up. They're all hopped up on different drugs and things. So it was a very exciting time in my life to really see if that's what I wanted to do. And I did. I was like, okay, I'm done. The interesting thing was I was there less than four days and I was already thrown in prison because I didn't understand the rules of photography either, like in, in a, in a third world country or one experiencing this type of duress. So I was taking photos and little did I know I was supposed to have press passes by the government and the military that issued me. So they just naturally assumed that I was taking pictures of things I wasn't supposed to because I was some type of spy. And then they threw me in their local prison. And in South Sudan, if you don't know anybody, you don't get food and you don't get water. Like, so people that are in prison there, all their food and water come from family members or friends. And that's how they sustain themselves while they're doing their time. I didn't have anybody. But luckily, you know, I, I was an American, which had a little bit of clout, I guess you could say. And uh, they I spoke to I spoke to the I guess what would be considered the police chief would come in and talk to me about things. It was very interesting because the very thing that got me into prison is what got me out. So he said, if you will take a picture of me and, in, and my entire staff and then print those photos and laminate them, I'll let you out of prison. I said, deal. I didn't know where I was going to get a lamination machine, <laughs> but I got out. I took all the photos. Uh, I had a lamination machine flown in from Great Britain and I laminated these photos. And I'm sure to this day, he still has those things hanging on his wall. Turned out to be a really good friend of mine. We still stay in touch. So that was like the beginning of my journey. He kind of told me what I needed to do to avoid that situation from that point on. But, uh, yeah, that's how that's how it all started. <laughs> so the guy who threw you in jail is now a buddy of yours. Yeah. That Go sounds for par for the course for your life. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned South Sudan was your, your first, uh, I'll call it tour. How did you choose it and how did you get there? Honestly, I looked for the worst place possible at the time. I figured out if I wanted to get my feet wet and really figure out if it was something I wanted to continue doing, then I wanted to get into, we'll just say like the dirty, dirty of it all. And I figured I figured it couldn't go anywhere but down at that point. So I chose South Sudan. It was it was having a lot of conflict there with North Sudan over the, the oil pipelines and things like that. They had, you know, their little skirmish wars everywhere. You had the Dinker and the Modadis over there having cattle wars and things like that. So it, it was that was my bet was that, OK, this this will be the place that I'll really be able to figure things out. And it was, you know, um, and I'm really glad to this day I did it. There were things that there were things that I witnessed in, again, those types of dress that I had never, ever considered because of my education, because of, you know, my upbringing, things like that. When you go into a country like that and you're able to see groups of people that haven't had that luxury of an education. Um, it's very, very eye-opening. You know, even over there, I remember there was a point where I sat down with a family and I was like, look, let me, let me take care of your family. Let me get your children into school. Like I'll pay for it. And I remember the family looked at me and they, they, they said, we don't want our kids to go to school. We have our kids so that we have another head to put a bucket on to carry water back into the village. So I, I remember when they said that, I was like, wow, like I, I had never imagined that that would ever be a response. And again, it was just my ignorance of, of, of those type of situations. But yeah, I, I, I captured everything I could, you know, I captured the guy in the, the, 
the wheat field on his knees, praying to God for rain because his crops were dying. And less than 800 yards away was the Nile with rushing water in it. But there was no, he had no conception of, of irrigation or anything. And it was just, like I said, very, very eye-opening to see all this stuff. And, and, and that's where I started. And based upon those atrocities I saw, there was a turning point for me. And, you know, I, I went and I worked in different regions and areas of South Sudan, um, DR Congo. And then I remember there was just a day, and I think it was around the, they were doing the Coney hunt. If you remember the Coney hunt years and years ago. And I was like, I need to put the camera down at this point because I think I figured out what I want to do. And it, what was it? It was, I want to help people. And I wasn't sure to what degree, but I knew that I was enjoying um, or I had a passion for doing something that wasn't monotonous. And let's be honest, like those type of environments are not monotonous whatsoever. They change by the second. And, you know, I felt comfortable for some reason in those environments. So that's kind of where I decided to go into it. It was like, let me see what I can do. And the first thing I noticed was there was a lot of NGOs over there, a lot of NGOs, but they all would sit on the outskirts of, of wherever the war or, or the problem was taking place. And then they would wait for it to subside and then they would move in and then provide their aid and then their medical treatments and things like that. And I was thinking, why aren't they going in right now? Like, this is when the people need it the most. And that was the seed that kind of erupted at that point. And from that point on, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to move into those areas. So how long are you covering uh, conflicts? I covered conflicts probably on and off for, I'd say maybe a year and a half at the most. And then I was done. Then I was like, okay. Uh, Yeah. That that aha moment. I had that aha moment. Yeah. And and yeah, so the, I, I'm trying to remember right now, the, one of the first operations we ever did was delivering medical supplies for Doctors Without Borders into the lower Blue Nile state, where everyone told us we were absolutely nuts and out of our mind. And I was like, no, we got this. We got this. And we did it. You know, we went in with the supplies and we protected the supplies against the rebel armies. And we got the supplies to the Doctors Without Borders. And it, th- that was the beginning of a really great relationship you know, with Doctors Without Borders and the fact that they they took us in. We also provided security and they taught us things in those triage tents, you know, and I was like, wow, this is cool. Learn to suture, things like that. So I started getting this training too. And at that point, again, I was hooked. I was hooked. I was like, this is what I want to do. And my whole mission statement at that point was, I want to save as many lives as possible. And here we are today doing the same thing. So in terms of getting the medical supplies, first of all, how'd you gather them? And you told us where they went. But then second of all, not everyone can just ship medical supplies to third world countries. How does all that work? Yeah. So what the first thing I did was I looked at organizations that were already there with medical supplies that weren't delivering them and waiting for the war to subside and then became the conduit for, hey, well, you're going to deliver those in there anyway. We're willing to go in now. How about you give us those supplies? And we'll kind of middleman them into the area that they need to go or where you're intending them to go. And that's that's kind of how we got our first supplies. And you would be very, very surprised how easy it is when you start bringing up medical, helping people, medical vaccinations, uh, medical checks and things like that. Everyone jumps aboard. People want to help people. So it, it that's the other beauty of of doing humanitarian work and rescue work is that 
it's not only the beauty of rescuing a person or people, it's the beauty of how many people come together to accomplish a common goal. And sometimes you see these massive mountains in front of you and you're like, there's no way we're going to be able to achieve this. But all the right people seem to come together. And, it, and it's, it's a beautiful thing to see what people can accomplish when they're working closely together and you eliminate, you know, the political bias and everything else. When everyone's just like, this is the goal, people can move mountains. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's, that's the other side of it. I think a lot of people don't talk about is it's wonderful when people come together and they achieve that common goal. It's, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of, to witness and to experience. And that's, that's kind of how we did it. And that's a great point. You always hear about the bad things, the negativity, what's actually going on in the region, not the good things about people coming together, organizations collaborating, uh, countries collaborating to, to achieve that common end goal, which is quite simply to help other human beings. Yeah. It's quite simple, right? But the, that doesn't sell news stories or magazines or newspapers. Right. Yeah. Or raise donations, right? Yeah, you know, yeah exactly. That's exactly. the other challenge. <laughs> so sticking with your medical supplies, have you ever had any shipments hijacked? And if so, what do you do then? Yeah. So that's the negotiations part. I've never had, so we have been hijacked. Well, attempted. It was an attempted hijack. I, I can think of two instances. Both of them were in Haiti. And we did we weren't necessarily moving medical supplies at that time. We were moving food, water. Um, and this was, you know, and you'll have to forgive me that I'm the worst with names. So I can't even remember which disaster this was. But Haiti first had that earthquake that went through there, which collapsed concrete buildings on people and lost a lot of people in Haiti at that time. So then they decided to rebuild with metal structures. And then a, and then the hurricane came through there and lifted the metal and turned it into wheeling knives. And then everyone got sliced up. So at that time, that's when we went in was after the earthquake. So that, that second uh, disaster took place. And there was a region outside of Jeremy that no one was able to get to. So there was some, there was water that had, created this rushing river and the river had ripped out all the, the bridges into this, this place called Jibwan. And we kind of, we were in a meeting and we were kind of in the back and everyone was trying to figure out in this meeting, all the people were like, okay, where are you going to work out of? So basically it was a coordination meeting and someone, you know, the speaker in front was like, okay, so there's this place called Jibwan that no one's able to get to. And we immediately raised our hand. We're like, that sounds like something we'll do. If no one can get, to it, we would love to take that on. And we ended up getting into Jabuan and uh, we were able to cross that river. And I think we did it at almost midnight when the water level was as low as it could possibly be. And I remember we crossed it and there was, there were points where it was like, I thought we were just going to get swept away, but had an incredible team with me. We got across, we got to the people and, you know, at, at that point we had to get all our supplies. in. so we were bringing um, the United States military allowed us to use uh, the Osprey, their Osprey helicopters, I guess to say thank you for getting into that area in the first place. So we had Ospreys that were bringing food and water in. Well, there were some people, there were some people that had come in from a city on the other side of, of where we were at. And they said, we keep taking food and water supplies into this particular type of region. And we're getting held up by at gunpoint by these well, uh, gangs or rebels, whatever you want to call them. 
So that was another time where we said, okay, we, we can go ahead and we can go ahead and see if we can do that. So we loaded two massive trucks with food and water with the intention of getting through that line and, and delivering where we needed to. So I remember we're, we're driving through there. I'm in the second vehicle in the back. And uh, sure enough, we see a tree down across, right? We, we come across, we come around this turn and then there's this tree down and I'm thinking, this is it. Like the tree's down intentionally. So we creep in slowly. The first vehicle, we separate the vehicles so we have a pretty decent space between us. And I watch. So the Terps are in the front. And then my security guy from Haiti is in the front. So he comes back and I tell him, okay, go up there. He gets out of the car. As soon as he gets out, the rebels come out of the tree line. They all have AK-47s. They're pointing them. They're screaming. They're yelling, creating panic and things like that, or attempting to create panic. And our, our Terps go up. They speak to him and then he comes back and he says, look, he goes, they want all the supplies. And if we don't give them the supplies, they're going to kill us all. And I said, okay. I said, go back and talk to him and tell him that we won't be, be giving them the supplies. And, and I, I, you'll have to forgive me. It's like, I'm trying to remember the conversation. We're going back pretty far, but he, he went back and all I saw were these rebels screaming and waving their guns at my guys. So I decided I'm going to jump out of the car. So I jump out of the car and I grab my walkie and I hold my walkie over my head like this. And I'm like, so just over my head. And I don't say anything. And I just keep walking towards the rebels. Now, the rebels see me walking with whatever it is in my hand, the walkie. And they don't know what's going on. And they're pointing guns at me. And then my guy runs back and he goes, what are you doing? And I said, you tell them that as soon as I key this walkie, the entire United States military is going to rain down hell on these guys. And he's like, what? I go, just tell him that. And I remember he went back to the rebels and I saw those guns drop so fast. And I'm like, now we're getting somewhere. This is my first negotiation I did. And I can't say that's probably the best way to do it, but (laughs) I got up there, we started talking and their biggest problem was, look, we see all this food and water going by and we have a village and families and they're all starving. And I said, look, you let us through today. And the next time we come through and I promise you that we'll take care of your families as well. And they said, okay. We got through the line. We delivered the food. We went back to the village that day. We grabbed more food and water, and we fed the rebels and their families and their village for the next eight straight months. And that's how that 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 was that was one of those times where it was like you know. And usually, usually in those type of areas, that's what they want. They want the food. They want the water. They want the medical. Um, and and. It doesn't matter to me whether they're rebels. It doesn't matter to me whether they're gang members or anybody else. Like a person is a person. A human being is a human being. You know, and in time of need, you know, we've always done our best. No bias at all. If there's someone on a battlefield, I don't care what side it is, and they're hurt, we're going to lift that person. We're going to do our best to get them out of there, and we're going to help them recover from whatever that problem is. And that was the same instance. You know, it was... And that was, that was successful. That was a very successful thing. And we've had a lot of close calls like that, like that could have completely backfired and went a completely different way, but you know, God willing, it worked out perfect. And, and I guess you just start learning through these, these things, right? You start learning and learning. And I was talking to a friend about it just the other day. And I was like, you know, over the course of doing this, we we should have written a manual on, on like, the things we've learned, you know, whether that's situational awareness, whether that's negotiations, um, it's, yeah, there's, there's so much to learn with people, right? <laughs> How they do things. That's a hell of a first negotiation and remind yeah. me not to play poker with you because that must have been one hell of a poker face you had on. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what was going to happen in that <laughs> one, but I kept a straight face the whole time. Uh, clearly. So Burke, I always hate to bring up unpleasant and actually traumatic memories 
but some are a vital chapter of your story. You've been shot once, stabbed twice. You mentioned being thrown in the third world prison once. You know, take some time and share the stories and their outcomes with us. Sure, sure. The stab, <laughs> this is an interesting one. I, I'm kind of embarrassed by this because the first time I got stabbed was actually in that prison in South Sudan. They had thrown me into uh, a room or a cell with a woman who had just killed her husband the night before, and she was hopped up on drugs. And then I became her next fist victim. So I don't know how she got that piece of metal that she had in there, but she walked up and stuck that right into my lower abdomen. And that was the first time I got knifed. Uh, that problem was solved pretty quick. And then she was <laughs> moved into another cell and then I was uh, cleaned up, but that was the first time. Um, I got shot when I kind of first time I got shot was I was working as a photographer and I got between a Dinker and a Modati battle, I guess you could say, where initially they started off with machetes and then they ended with AK-47s. And I got a little too close to where I shouldn't have been, I guess. And I caught a wild round, I guess you could say. And that popped me in the leg. So um that was the that was getting shot thank god i haven't been shot since then so it's not a it's not a crazy story i wasn't in a war what you know i mean i guess that was kind of a war but it was more of a a scurry between two tribes that were fighting over someone had lost a cow somewhere along the line and decided they needed to kill each other over it and then uh the other knife was the knife that i got on that was in a place called somalia and I got hit with a guy or I, I, we, we walked up to a group of guys in Somalia at the time they had the, they were dealing with all the oil that the oil companies had just pulled out of there and kind of, I guess, polluted all their water systems and things like that. And we had gone in there to kind of take a second look to do medical work with the people there, figure out if we can help with some solutions on food and clean water and things like that. And there was a guy that I was speaking to, he got hostile and pulled out a knife and stuck me with a knife. And that was kind of, I wish it was a more exciting story that I could share on that one, but. It's a knife in Somalia. That's exciting enough. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know if how, how greasy, dirty and rusty it was. So it, that probably could have been worse too, but he, he only got me in the arm on that time. So it was just, so I've got an abdomen puncture wound. I've got an arm puncture wound and then I've had my leg shot, but. Sorry, that's not more. No, that's more than enough. <laughs> you founded the Humanitarian Aid and Rescue Project back in 2016. HARP has executed missions in a number of the world's most dangerous hotspots. Do you choose to get involved in a particular place based on the macro picture or a very specific micro situation? Hmm. That's a very, that again, you have some really great questions. It's, that's evolving. It's that, that's an, there's an evolution, I think, to that. In the beginning... In the beginning, we started with areas. In the beginning, when we 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 weren't back tested, we were still green. We'll say, um, if there was a disaster, we deployed to that disaster. It didn't make a difference what it was. I think the first disaster we deployed to was two Category Fives touchdown in a place called Moore, Oklahoma. I'm going back. I want to say that was around 2016 or 2017. We had we 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 chose that because again it was okay. Here's here's some hurricanes. We were trying to get on our feet. We we're trying to learn as much as we could. 
we're trying again. It was, we were very excited about going into the field and, and helping people. And that was the first thing. And there were only two of us that went. It was myself and a girl uh, named Trisha. She was, she was the one that was like, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, she was like my Tomb Raider girl at the time <laughs> with red hair. She was, she was very gutsy and I'm sure she still is, but we, we got into more Oklahoma uh, first category five, a touchdown. When we got there, the second one was coming in. And I remember we were at the airport and the airport was like, you have to go underground. And I'm like, no, I got to get my rental car. And they're like, no, you have to go underground. I said, no, I'm getting my rental car. And we were the only two people that walked out of the airport when that second category five was coming in. I remember we sat down on a bench for a minute so we could watch it in a distance. And I had never, ever experienced that type of destruction in my life. So I was like, okay, we, we went and got the rental car and then we drove and we ended up in this category five hurricane or tornado, excuse me. And yeah, so we, we started helping. And the one thing I learned on that first operation was you can burn an extremely large amount of money helping people and not get a single donation in return. So I was like, okay, we've got to figure out that side of it. I mean, over the course of doing this type of work, I've gone through my entire life savings twice. So I funded my organization for the most part for, I guess, for the first six or seven years. And I would come home to absolutely nothing. And then I would have to reinvent myself and get a job and save my money and then go to the next deployment. And I'd spend all that money and I would do it over and over and over again. But sorry, I, I, I get sidetracked here on that. But yeah, in the beginning, in regards to like the evolution of it, we would just go to whatever we felt we needed to go. Now, the interesting thing was, was once we started to get known for the successful operations that we would do, people started calling us. We'd start getting messages, texts. It's a very, very small world, believe it or not, in the humanitarian world. And you have a very small select group of NGOs that communicate with each other on private back channels and stuff like that. I know there's hundreds of thousands of NGOs out there that do all types of work. But again, when you when, when you gather a success rate that that's pretty stable, for some reason, it's kind of like tennis players hang out with tennis players, lawyers hang out with lawyers, right? You get to a point where it's like, okay, there's a small group of NGOs that are all somewhat successful in what they do and they all communicate together and then everything trickles down from there and fortunately we've been blessed enough to be on that you know on that top tier at this point and now it's requests government requests state requests other ngos requesting help um and then there's a lot of people that reach out independently that are in those areas saying is there anything you can come and do help with our village our family uh, our cities and things like that all the way down to sheriff's departments that now call us send us messages and things like that and say you know can can harp come in and help us with this challenge that we're having um so so we're kind of blessed in that area now it's just now we just filter through the 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 requests that come in and then and then we figure out what it is that we have the capability of doing at that time the time how many people can go in and things like that well to that point it's great you're getting all these well it's not great you're getting all these requests but the sheriff department reached out other organizations reach out but again at the end of the day where's that funding come from yeah so that's Wow, that's the tough one, right? Like that's the donations. Like we are a 501c3 nonprofit NGO. And what that means is we don't make any money. I know there's NGOs out there that pay salaries. We don't pay anything. Um, 
all the money that comes in from donations, we put back into the field, every single dime of it. And then what we run off of is, believe it or not, like this is, I'm not going to try and sell anybody on this because as soon as I say this, I know there's going to be a few laughs on this. But at this point, I've literally lived the last six years of my life off my Bitcoin investment. (laughs) (laughs) So for you. That's where my money comes from. And it's not a lot. I don't, I don't want to pretend like it is, but I can tell you it's enough to where I can get through my daily life right now, you know, and with those donations that come in, you know, we volley for those donations. We, we send out emails, we send out requests through social media and things like that. And um, we just hope that what we need to do an operation comes in, you know, and it's a lot harder for us because we're not an organization that gives out you know, we, we do rescues. We rescue people. We go into a place that most people aren't going to go. And we grab the people that need to be grabbed, whether it's men, women, children, or the elderly. And then we bring them back out. And that's what our job is. You know, we, we have branched off now. We have a medical division now. So um, we've got an incredible group of doctors all the way down to neurosurgeons. And we're starting that up right now. But our job is to go in, rescue people, and bring them out. Now, that's really hard to raise donations for. And it might not seem hard like to the normal person, but people want to see their money at work. They want to see you handing something off that's tangible to another person. It's like, okay, I see where my dollar went. You just handed that person a bottle of water, or you just handed a big box of food to someone, or you're handing clothes to them. We don't do that. So it's hard for us to say, we can show you your money at work, other than the fact that we go into the field, risk our lives for free, and grab these people and bring them back into safety. That's a really hard pitch because it's very hard to show money at work, right? Like, so that's our, that's our challenges. Look, and I think now at this point, again, we've gotten to the point where we, we are back tested. We can show our successes, our rate of success. Um, you know, we've, we've been featured on every large, you know, news channel out there, CNN, Fox, NBC, ABC, Newsmax, NPR. And hopefully that helps us too, right? That, that, that speaks volumes for like what we're doing. And, but, but man, I tell you, it's hard because, you know, you have a lot, you have a lot of NGOs, you know, and I don't want to bash any great NGOs because there's great NGOs out there. People do amazing work, but there are some people like in every other part of our culture where, where people are in it for the wrong reason. It's like, oh, let's start a 501c3 and take people's money through donations. And consequently, the problem is, is it hurts organizations like ours and so many others that are doing great work because people don't trust people anymore. You know, where's my money going? We've all heard the horror stories of 501c3s, you know, the CEO or president making $350,000 a year. Like, why would I want to give a donation to that? So it is a lot harder. The struggle is real for us because again, we, you know, where the money goes is it goes to the travel expenses, the equipment we need in the field, all the way down to the boots that we wear um, and everything we need to be able to go into, go into a place, you know, whether it's a disaster or whether it's a battlefield, there's things that we need to be able to do our job effectively. And more importantly, there's things that those that we're rescuing need to bring them back out effectively, you know? So, and whether that's, whether that's a helicopter ride or whether that's a a rental of a vehicle or a motorcycle or a buggy or whatever it might be like, like these are expenses. Right. And I think what a lot of people don't realize too, is in disaster zones and and war zones, 
the cost of everything goes up because there's always those that are profiting off things, you know, like a tarp you can pick up for $5 and then suddenly there's a disaster or a war zone and that same tarp is going to cost you $100. Like it's, it, it's just really crazy. So, so yeah, so our, our struggle has always been on, on the back inside, which is the donations at the executive side, we'll say, because it's not something we ever focused on. Like we were just like, let's just go out and rescue people and save people because that's what we're really good at. But none of us are really business people, you know, and we're constantly looking for business people to come in and be like, Hey, help, you know, we're like, help us out here. Uh, but I guess, I guess if there's any area that I could say that I potentially failed in, it's the executive side of things because my focus has always been on just rescuing people, which is why I literally have gone broke multiple times in my life is using money out of my own pocket. And that was my solution until I realized, I think I need a little bit money in my bank account so that when I get older, when I do things, you know, like, so consequently, I don't have a nest egg like most people. And again, people work these jobs their entire lives to get to the top of that ladder to make that amazing amount of money. Whereas every time, every time we go into the field and come back, we've already lost the job we had that was making money. We have to find a new job and we have to start all over again. So there's a lot of challenges in this industry, probably to the point where people are like, why do you even do that? But, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the challenge. Saving lives is anything but a failure. Well, thank you. Thank you. I agree. I agree. <laughs> and now you can add both Voice America and Next Steps Forward to your major media outlets. Excellent. Thank and you. More, more importantly, tell our listeners and viewers where they can go to donate. Thank you. If anyone would like to donate, you can go to Harp Rescue. That's H-A-R-P Rescue dot O-R-G. And uh, anything, I, a, a dollar helps, $5 helps. Um, anything helps us in the field. Like I said, all the money, all the donations go directly back into the field to help save more lives. So thank you. Here's one of my favorite questions that my producer wrote. Yeah. I know that groups often rely on fixers. When I think of a fixer, I'm thinking of a movie like Denzel Washington and just kind of makes things happen or makes things go away. But what is a fixer? How do you find one? And how do you know that you can trust them? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, a fixer is someone that fixes things, right? Like that's the obvious. How they fix things is they they manage things that normally we wouldn't be able to do. So they're familiar with terrain. They're familiar with the road systems, where the roads go, uh, the alleys, the back roads. They're familiar with the language being spoken. And you always want to also find one that has a lot of contacts, um, whether those are good contacts or bad contacts. Both types of contacts work. So it's it is, it is kind of like your your Denzel Washington, right? It's it's the it's the guy who's been through the mud and swam through the rivers, has worked for the government and things like that. Um, he's the one that fixes the problems that you might potentially run into. Uh, and how you find them, that's that's a good question. You know, Ooh, I don't know how you would find them in the beginning because we didn't really have any in the beginning. We just kind of ran through it, you know, and then we'd hope we'd meet someone, um, whether it was someone who, who allowed us to stay in their home while we were doing, doing the work or something like that. Now it's a little bit easier. It's, it's a little bit easier because the name harp is kind of out there now. So whenever we go into an area, 
um, or we're going into an area, there's there's now there's a lot of channels that we can reach out to. We we can reach out to government now. We can reach out to state. We can reach out to law enforcement, and we can reach out to other NGOs and say, hey. I saw that you were in this area, you know, last year, a few years ago, did you have a fixer? Um, who'd you use? And then can you, you know, can you verify that fixer? Was he someone you could trust? Did he do his job good? And, and that's kind of how we do it now. But aside from that, I, it's, it's hit or miss, you know? Um, yeah, it's hit or miss. We relied on Facebook for a long time, you know, because there were people that were usually in those areas of disaster that were posting stories on on Facebook. Like, I can't believe this just happened. A tornado just struck down four miles from my house. And then in the beginning, we would just reach out to that person and say, hey, we're so-and-so. We're getting ready to come into your area. We'd love to help. Um, these are the things that we lack or that we need in your area, like a fixer, for instance. And usually those people be like, I know the right person for you. And then from that point on, we just kind of cross our fingers and hope that that person could be trusted. And I can honestly say we never had a bad experience with a fixer. They were always really, really great people and did the job that, that they said they would do. So do you have Denzel Washington's phone number? <laughs> the enforcer. No, I wish I did. I put him on the team. <laughs> Brian Searcy, a situational awareness expert, was a guest on our show back in March. And your line of work, obviously, you know a lot about situational awareness. Was it easy for you to develop the level of situational awareness you needed as a war photographer and then now in the humanitarian work that you do? You know, I. I am, first of all, I'm a huge advocate of situational awareness. I, I am an extremely calm person in under duress in whether it's a war zone or whether it's a, a natural disaster. And I can tell you the, the, the best thing people can do in those situations is be calm, listen, and watch. And I think, I think, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example of, well, Ukraine war is a really good example. You know, situational awareness there is 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 key in every single thing you do when you cross over into a hostile or over a hostile line. You know, there's looking into the sky for reconnaissance planes, you know, and, and we ran into those in in Ukraine, seeing Russian reconnaissance planes above us, you know, grabbing long and lats and potentially shooting things in. So there's there's aerial. There's all the way down to stopping in the car and jumping out to, let's just say there's someone on the side of the road that's having a problem. Okay, stop and grab him. It, it's you open the door, you look and you listen, and then you react. You don't want to step on any spent munitions. You don't want to step on a mine. You know, there, there was an incident in Ukraine where we, we caught a guy that was walking down a dirt road in a minefield, completely unaware that he was in a minefield. And there were signs everywhere saying, this is a minefield. Do not go in here. So I, I guess it's, it's, it's focus, right? Like it's focus. It's, it's being aware of environment. And more importantly, it's staying calm and not, I say this, there's no need to talk <laughs> like watch, listen, right. Get it, get it, get a very good uh, grasp of your surroundings. And then, and then also you need to understand how to deal with those surroundings as well, you know, but situational awareness. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's key. I, and, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a war zone. It's like, what is situational awareness somewhere else in like a disaster zone? It's all the way down to like brushing your teeth in a shower and, 
in a third world country, you don't want to open your mouth and smile, right? You don't want that water in your body or there's a potential of you catching. I mean, there's so many things around situational awareness. You know, there's all mosquitoes, you know, carrying malaria. There's, you know, it's, it, there's, it's just such a massive topic, situational awareness, but, but yeah, the more calm I've noticed, the more calm a person is, the more silent and composed the person is and the person that listens and watches before they take action is usually the one that uh, is usually the one that understands situational awareness or is at least you know monitoring their environment i don't know if i answered your question i apologize because that, again that's a tough one it's like i love it I, again i'm an advocate for situational awareness i wish i could do an entire course on situational awareness but i it's, it's one of those things where I feel like you, you got to put someone in the environment, let them do what they want to do, and then come back and say, hey, okay, let's go over the steps that you took in that environment. And let's explain to you now what situational awareness is and how you could have done it differently to make sure that nothing, you know, potentially nothing would happen to you in those environments. And our situational awareness is great. You know, we haven't lost a single person. We, we have no casualties and we have no losses. And I praise God for that. And I, I hope we never do, but most of that credit I give to the fact that we pay close attention to situational awareness and wh wherever we might be in the world. Your life must be extraordinarily pressure packed. You just talked about being calm during situational awareness when there's a minefield, when you get out of your, your truck, because the next steps forward is about personal well-being in part. How do you, Berg Bryant, take care of yourself physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally? Hmm. Well, I am at the gym usually five days a week. <laughs> I try and stay in good shape. And it's gym to me is, I guess that's my therapy for all intents and purposes. Uh, just lifting weights and working out is just the byproduct of that therapy. But I, I you know, I, I eat right. Uh, when I was younger, you know, I was, I was really big into health and nutrition. Um, I ate only, this is funny. I only did raw food. So I only ate seeds and nuts and vegetables for 13 straight years of my life, uncooked. So I, I understand that the beauty of that is I just understand the benefits of eating a clean diet, um, getting enough oxygen into my body to make sure that it combats, you know, pathogens and things like that. I understand that I need to get antioxidants into my body regularly to counter free radicals. So it's funny. I look at this and I'm thinking, wow, all this stuff that I did when I was younger has kind of moved me into where I'm at today and provided benefits. Like you're asking now, like, how do you take care of yourself? If, if I didn't do that stuff when I was younger, I probably would be in much worse shape than I am physically and mentally. So it's funny you asking that question. I'm kind of looking back going, wow, everything is kind of Everything has kind of moved exactly to where I am today. Like it's all provided a benefit that that allows me to stay healthy, um, physically fit, uh, disease free. But and there's also, you know, there's the negative side to that too. Like I don't have children. I'm not married. Um, and having a successful relationship is probably one of the most challenging, if not the most challenging thing that that I've ever really had to deal with in my life. So there's there is kind of a a sadness back into all this too. But you expanded Harp's impact and mission last year by establishing Halo Group, which is a specialized task force that combats and disrupts child trafficking. 
Was there a particular incident that compelled you to make that move or was it just a, a cumulative series of events? Yeah, there's, I guess it was definitely a series of events. Um, we've dealt with a lot of women, children um, doing the work we do. And we've listened to a lot of stories that those women and children have given us um, when we've gone in and worked with them, pulled them out of places and things like that. And I think there was just a point where it was like, I can't, I can't listen to another woman or child tell me that the whole reason why they're in this situation in the first place that we had to come in and rescue them was because they were doing something that they were told or forced to do by someone else. And whether that was um, labor or whether it was a sexual act to make money. And I think there was a point where I was like, okay, let's, let's, let's expand a little bit and create another organization or a sub organization of harp that specializes in, in, in trafficking. And that's kind of how it started was I just was like, okay, there's, there's something to this. There's let's figure out how we can help in this area. I, 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 the first thing that comes to mind to me is like, I do my best not to spread myself thin, even though it sounds like I spread myself thin. Right. But again, Harp consists, the organization itself consists of some very, very amazing people. And there's a lot of people, you know, that, that are on the back end working Intel sides of things. Uh, I mean, these, these people, when I say they're incredible people, they're incredible. They all come from, from past jobs at DOD, CIA, FBI. You know, we've got a lot of um, special operations guys that work with us on our team, um, SEALs, force recon guys. So there's a there's a, a plethora of people within HARP that have the ability to get the intel needed to really make a difference in whatever it might be that we're working in. Um, so it just seemed normal to branch out and say, let's go after this this trafficking thing because uh, we've all been children, right? We've all been kids at some point in our life, and we've all had some type of event as kids that we can look back on even to this day when we're older and say, that was kind of, kind of slightly traumatic for me as a kid, you know, and we've all had, we've, I, I, you know, I speak for myself cause I, I don't want to put words in anybody else's mouth, but I can think of at least half a dozen incidents sexually where I felt like there was an adult or, or someone that might've, or was willing to take advantage of me if I had reacted a completely different way sexually or even work-wise. Right. And I just, I just felt like there was, it's like, okay, I can relate to like being put into a box and not being able to get out, you know, as an example, not literally a box, but not having any options right in life. And it just seemed, it seemed natural to, to say, okay, let's do this. Like, let's get this going. And we discussed it for probably three years before we finally made the, the jump into actually creating Halo Group and then actually going after after these traffickers, but I tell you, I've, I have never ever in my life faced a problem that's so massive than trafficking. And it is a massive problem. And I know a lot of people don't know how massive it is. I know you, I know most people just listen to people like me talking about how massive it is because it's a really shadowed thing. It's very hidden, right? And it has to be, otherwise it wouldn't be the problem it is today. So to go out and say, look, like this is a huge problem. 
a lot of people are like, well, I'm not really seeing it. And I'm like, you got to trust me. You're not going to see it. You got to trust that it's a huge problem. And that, that that's a big challenge too. You know, a lot of people want to want to kind of avoid, or I, I think when things like this don't affect people's lives, there's a lot of people that are like, well, it's not in my life. It's not affecting me. I'm not experiencing it on, on any, you know, uh, visual or I'm not hearing it. I'm not seeing it. I'm not sensing it. And they just assume that it doesn't exist at that point. So awareness, right? We need we need greater awareness around this problem. People need to people need to realize that just because they're not experiencing it in their personal life that it doesn't exist. And uh, but yeah, it's it's a it's a massive problem. And I tell you, since we've started Halo Group, it's been nonstop on that side of things. Uh, we just got back from Arizona. We were out there on the borders. Um, the tunnels, they're they're moving, you know, when you think of an underground tunnel from a cartel, you think, oh, they're moving drugs. I tell you, it's not just drugs. It's, you know, it's drugs, it's weapons, and um, it's women and children and and boys as well, you know. They're moving them to and from across the borders and things like that. And it, it used to be, it, it used to be a business that you probably you know, it was a few hundred thousand dollars, you know, they could get the tunnels going and they could start moving the merchandise. It, it's turned into a, a multi-million dollar business, getting people from, from one side to the other to traffic those people. And I've seen, I've seen these tunnels and I've seen the people moving through them. And I've seen the holdup spots where once they get through the tunnel, they hold up you know, in a certain area and they wait for transportation to come in. I've seen the things left in those holdup spots. And, you know, I, I, I can like visually, like we put stuff out on that and I can't, I can't imagine what it would be like to have no ability to get away from someone who's saying, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life, as far as I'm concerned. And, and, and it goes so much beyond that. It's like, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to make money for us and it's going to be through sex. And it doesn't matter if you're a man, a woman, a child, a boy, it doesn't matter. This is what you're going to do. And then when you're used up, we're going to cut you open and we're going to harvest your organs. And then we're going to dig a hole and throw you into it. And we're going to backfill it and you're gone. And these people, I, that's just the atrocity of that. And the problem is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, with with depression, with sadness, with with a crashing economy, you know, whether it's this country or another country, the three things that thrive in that economy when it starts to go down is gambling, sex and alcohol. And when the world is on a downward spiral or let's just say because this, this is not political in any way whatsoever to me, let's just say when the cost of living is higher, it's, it's the struggle of living is much greater. People look for things or outlets to make them feel better. And it's gambling, alcohol, and sex. And right now the world is in this, in this, you know, and it has been, and it seems to be getting worse. It's just, it's, it's just getting more sad is that the cost of living is, is, is astronomically higher than it used to be. And people are looking for outlets. Like, how do I ignore what's going on and make myself feel better? And sadly, these, these are the things that people, you know, a lot of people gear towards, which is creating a much, much bigger problem right now. When you and I first spoke, I'd mentioned how human trafficking or anti-human trafficking has been a much bigger focus of me and for the show. And you talk about it as a business. It is the largest illegal business 
on the planet, larger than illegal drugs. And to your point, people think, well, it's not in my neighborhood, but you Google human trafficking and you're going to find eight stories that happened in the last three days. I live in Connecticut. There was a sting in New Jersey. I saw one in San Diego. I saw yours in Arizona. It's happening. And you, again, situational awareness. It's not always going to be that white van with no windows, you know, in the, the, the grocery store parking lot. Um, but it is happening. And it is in particular, you mentioned young boys. You know, my son is 10, almost 11. I would never think of that. But all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, tall kid, curly blonde hair. Like, yeah, it's a real problem. And so I try and talk more and more to our listeners and our viewers about it. Again, situational awareness, again, take action. And so I know your team is stretched thin in terms of the work that you do, but thank you for getting involved in this, you know, Herculean task as well. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and you, and you couple, you couple all that with a lack of consequence and now you just have a, a cocktail of destruction, right? Exactly. And that's the other side of it is the laws. The, we, we need to step the laws up in regards to, to th- this type of atrocity in, in, in sex trafficking, the laws need to be stepped up so that they're much more steeper or I don't even know the word. They, they, people need to be punished severely for what they're doing. And right now they're not. You know, I look at Ukraine right now, 10,000 plus children are are missing and unaccounted for. So I do apologize. I'm not sure what's going on here. That's all right. Burke Bryant, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate your time. And it's certainly thank you for all the work that you do. Absolutely. Thank you for your time, Chris. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to talking to you again. Likewise. One more time. What's the website? Harp Rescue, H-A-R-P Rescue.org. That's harprescue.org. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details and upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.